We're looking at 1 Peter 5. We're going to start in uh, verse 5, and uh, it's printed for you in the bulletin uh, if you want to follow along. And this is God's word to you because you're his people and because he loves you. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for how honest it is. That it speaks truth about us and we thank you that this word has the power to actually shape us as a community. And we pray that by your spirit you would take your perfect word through an imperfect teacher and apply it to the hearts of, of, your, of your people. And I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and you uh, would open the ears of the deaf, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would behold the light of the gospel. And uh, would you work in us? And so now, uh, may the meditations, of, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we've, we have spent the last two summers looking at First Peter. And, you know, uh, even this summer, a number of very practical kind of topics have come up. We, a couple weeks on marriage. Um, we, Andrew had a week on, on sharing our faith and interacting with uh, people who don't believe the same we, as we do and sharing our faith with people. Last week we talked about church elders, uh, very practical uh, parts of church life. And, um, and you know, there, there are many topics that are very practical and important for, for a church, but actually just this week in home group I was talking to uh, Paul Fredette and he was telling me about a, a book that he was reading, and he was saying that the author that he w- was describing how the, um, when a church is defined by grace, by the grace of God, by the gospel, it's not just something that, you know, you go on their website and they say, oh, we believe in grace, or it's not just something that's in their doctrinal statement, it's not just something that they say that they believe, but it actually creates a certain atmosphere in the church, if a church really believes in grace, really believes in the gospel, there's a certain mood that is created, an atmosphere. And, and you, you probably know what I'm talking about. You walk into a church, and one of the biggest things that you're kind of judging about the church is how does it feel? How do I feel here? How am I welcomed? I can't even pinpoint it, but there's a certain mood to it, right? 
And uh, actually, actually, I've just, over the past few months, been slowly reading through a, a book called Planet Narnia, which uh, is, is a book about C.S. Lewis and his, uh, about his writings, about uh, both his theological writings, his fiction, his scholarly work. And, um, and it's, a, it's a book that, in particular, is about the Narnia stories. And if those of you know the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a seven-book series that he wrote in the 50s. And one of the big mysteries about the, the seven books, the Chronicles of Narnia, is that no one for the last 50 years has known what ties them all together. Is there a theme that kind of ties all the books together? What, what's the main, the unifying thread? And, of course, if you've read them, you know that some of them are very Christian. They have the very uh, Christian theme, Aslan is like Jesus, and that comes out very clearly. In other of the books, it, it comes out a lot less. And so there seem, it's been a big mystery what is the thing that ties them together? And actually, Michael Ward, who wrote this book, has, I think has found the, the key. And what he said, uh, by reading Lewis's other writings, one of the things that was most important to Lewis about what a book does is that it creates an atmosphere. It creates a mood. It creates a world that you can't really pinpoint anywhere, but when you're reading the book, it's just kind of the whole air that you breathe when you walk into that world. And he said, that's the most important thing that an author is doing, is creating that atmosphere. And so, actually, that's what Michael Ward says, is that each of the seven books are the seven planets from medieval cosmology. And each planet has a certain mood to it. So Jupiter has this kingly, jovial, um, celebratory, festive uh, feel to it. And that's the, the line, the Witch of the Wardrobe, is the Jupiter book. And then... Uh, Prince Caspian is the, is the uh, Mars book, which has battles and wars. There's a mood to it. And I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about, what he's reading in this, in this book, is that what we're doing as a church, we're creating a little world <laughs> that has a, an atmosphere. You know what I'm talking about. You walk in, and there's an atmosphere that we're creating, that God is creating here. And it's maybe the most important aspect of our church life is what is that mood? What is the air like in here? And, um, you know, I'll tell you, you know, you might ask yourself, what would be the atmosphere? What is, how would you describe the atmosphere of a community where God was really present? If God was really present there, what would be the defining quality of it? And I think that Peter is, at the end of this book, to a, a number of churches and a number of Christians um, in Asia, he, he says this in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the atmosphere um, of the community that he has in mind is, is this, an atmosphere of humility. That's the thing that I can't pinpoint, but I feel when I walk in here. That's what God intends for us as a community, is that we would be a humble people. And another way, in Philippians, Paul describes humility this way, of esteeming others is better than yourself. That's what humility is, is esteeming others better than yourself. And so what I want to do is, as we look at this passage, um, is let this passage teach us a little bit about um, what humility is, and uh, where it comes from, and so that maybe God would make here in this church the air that we breathe here, the air of humility. And uh, so I want to say three things in particular about humility, that humility is dependence, it's relationship, and it's shyness. 
So uh, it's humility is dependence on God. Humility is the key to true relationships. And lastly, I, I, I think it, there's actually a kind of shyness that comes. I, and I don't, I'm, I don't mean by that, you know, if you're outgoing, then you're not humble. That's not what I mean. There's a certain kind of shyness that I think is the mark of a Christian, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Um, and so those three things are what humility is. So first, uh, humility is dependence upon God. And, you know, not to spend too much time on C.S. Lewis, but uh, when he was writing these stories, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, this is, I just invite you to repent right now and, and go buy the books and read them. And uh, sermon over. Um, no, the, uh, uh, one of the things, the Chronicles of Narnia about this world called Narnia, and it's a very you know, magical world. And a lot of people would write C.S. Lewis and they'd say, hey, how did you come up with this world? How did, that, how did you come up with these brilliant stories that have been so famous? And one of the things that he said is, you know, it just came out of me. And a lot of authors will say that, that there was just something in me and it came out of me. And actually, there were certain images in his mind that from very early on in his life, he had this, uh, he had this image of a fawn with an umbrella walking through a snowy wood with a lamppost and he's carrying parcels. It, from the time he was about 13, he had this image in his mind. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's right near the opening is a fawn with an umbrella and a lamppost. And he said, this image just came out of me, and it was this world, and I don't know where it came from. And what he said was, that you, there are things that just come out of you. You can't just sit down and say, I'm going to create this world. It just has to come out of what's inside of you. And I think that that's the same uh, with creating a, 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 for us to create a, a church that this is, the spirit of this church is one of humility. Is not something that we can just sit, sit down and say, let's be a humble community. Let's just create a humble community. It doesn't work like that. There has to be something in us that that's just spilling out of, almost accidentally, that we couldn't even control. And, um, I, you know, Peter says something very interesting in here. You, you notice that first he says in first, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Which, to me, I, I don't know how that hits you, but clothe yourself sounds very superficial. You know, I'm putting on kind of a show of humility. It's this external thing. It's not really internal um, you put on the clothes of humility, but are you really humble? What's really going on under the clothes, right? And, uh, but then he goes on. He doesn't leave it there. He goes on in verse 6 to say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And actually, just that word there, humble yourselves, um, is tapenao. Uh, um, uh, uh, it's actually passive. It's not make yourself humble. That's not what he's saying. He says, be humbled. Let God do something in your life that actually humbles you. And that little phrase, under the mighty hand of God, if you, look, if you went into the Old Testament and looked up the mighty hand of God, what that would be talking about is uh, in the Exodus, you know, Israel was enslaved and God, uh, under the Egyptians, and God came and pounced on the Egyptians and he delivered them and he brought them to a new land and uh, gave them a new life. And that, that was when they were under the mighty hand of God. It was when he delivered them. And, you know, they, were, they weren't a big, special people. They were small. They didn't deserve it. They whined a lot. And God said, it wasn't because you were good that I saved you. It was because I loved you. It was because of my promises to you. And actually, that's what Jesus says, that he did, he did the same thing for us, that we were slaves under sin. We couldn't say no to sin. We just did it. And we were small, and we were weak, and we whined a lot, and God came into our life, and, uh, and he saved us, and he gave us new life. 
That's the mighty hand of God. It's not something that we've done. It's something that God has done for us. In the beginning of humility, of having true, deep humility, is us not, it's not just making yourself humble. It's understanding that God has done something for us. It's letting ourselves be humbled under the mighty hand of God. And so that uh, uh, true humility comes by having at the core of who you are, Jesus saved me and I didn't deserve it. That's who I am. Jesus saved me and I didn't deserve it. And when you have that at the core of who you are, deep down inside, God is creating humility internally. And so um, what that means is that we see ourselves um, as totally and utterly dependent on God for everything. That uh, the main way we understand our lives is, is uh, a life of dependence. And uh, that Jesus saved me, and, and, I, and I, I didn't do anything for it. So that when things are going well in our life, you know, things are well at home, or our job is going well, or we're making friends, or we're serving God, and things feel good, if our life is a life of dependence, say everything I have comes from God and I didn't deserve it, then, then we look at a life like that and it humbles us. You know, I'm being a good father, it humbles me more. Or if, I'm, uh, if my job's going well or things are, you know, I'm building friends, it humbles me to say, I didn't deserve that and God gave me all these things. If, if I understand my life as being dependent. But if, you, if your life is an independent life, I make... Uh, I may, you know, I make my life for myself. I don't need anyone helping me. I'm, I'm sufficient for myself. And then things are going well. What do we do? We start saying, I'm awesome. I, we drink it in. Wow, my family's good. My job's going well. I am seriously awesome. Um, and we just, we love that. It's just drink it down, lay in bed, you know, lay up, look in the grass, look into the sky, think about how awesome we are. You see what it is. A, a dependent life versus an independent life results in either humility or pride. And, um, and, the, question, um, you know, and the question that we should ask is, is which describes us? Internally in our hearts, how do we approach life? How do we approach problems? Is, do we say, you know, even with people, with people or with God, do we say, listen, I can handle this. Stay out of it. I don't want to let you know about problems I'm having. I can handle this. I'm an independent person. Which is it? Or are we dependent? Do we invite people in to help us? Do we invite God in to help us? Let me just warn you. Hear this word from Peter. God opposes the proud. The independent, I don't need any help. I'm sufficient for myself. God opposes that. But on the other hand, he gives grace to the humble. God moves towards the humble. And... um, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, that's a habit of heart of learning that everything I'm going to have, everything that happens in my life is something that God is going to give me freely. You know, when you get to heaven and everything's fixed and you're, you don't sin anymore and you don't have any more problems and you're in the presence of God, do you know that you will still, every single thing that you have will come by the hand of God as free grace? You will still be totally dependent. You will still be humbled before God. You're not going to become independent when you get to heaven. It's going to be even more. You're just going to like it. You're going to like that God hands everything to you by free grace. You're, you're, that you're not going to be bitter towards that anymore. And so um, let me just say a few words about how do you cultivate a dependent life on, uh, on God. And um, this may be one of the best verses. Verse 7 may be one of the best verses in this whole book. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
casting all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Um, The most prominent quality of a dependent, humble life is that when you are faced with anything that causes you anxiety, you simply tell it to the Lord because you know he cares for you. You tell it to him. And, you know, I'll tell you, Trev, Trevor teaches me this all the time. I'll, you know, I'll be talking to Trevor, and I'll say, oh, you know, I don't, I got to write a sermon. I don't, I need illustrations. I don't know what to say. And he's like, oh, did you tell the Lord that? He, he cares for you. <laughs> Just tell it to him. I'm like, what? And then I'll be like, oh, I'm struggling as a dad, and I, I can't do this. I don't know what's, and he's like, you should tell God that. Just tell him. He, he loves you. I'm just like, how do you know all this stuff? How did you, where did you learn this? You know, it's just like, just tell him. He cares for you. It's, uh, that's honestly, a dependent life looks like that. And you might think that sounds silly or simple or trite. It's not. It's very contrary to your flesh and everything that's in you to do that. But simply to tell God, these are my anxieties. This is Isaiah 66, 2 says, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the Lord speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The thing that moves God towards us uh, is humility. That draws God into us. You know, your smallness, your weakness, the things that you feel like you can't do in your life, the things that are causing you anxiety, all of that is a doorway into walking with God and knowing him better. It's a doorway. And, we're invi- and we walk through it by humility and say in a dependent life, okay? So first, an atmosphere of humility comes when we have a group of people whose the, the prominent way they live is by dependence on God. They're not independent people. They're dependent people. But second, humility is also the key to true relationships. Humility is the key to true relationships. Um, you know, now something that I've thought quite a lot about over the years, this has been a, a perplexing problem for me, is the question of if someone trusts in God versus someone who trusts in themselves, is there really any psychological difference between what they're doing? You know, I know that I'm a Christian. I believe you should trust in God. We're made to trust in God. But when someone trusts in God and someone trusts in self, it, you know, what's happening internally? Are they functionally doing the same thing? They're just finding some source of positivity to kind of get them into the world and get them going or, or to give them courage? or uh, is, is there really any psychological difference? I don't know if you ever asked that. And um, I'll tell you, befi- besides the fact that God says that we should trust in him and he's made us for that, um, there's one obvious psychological con- consequence if you trust in yourself instead of in, in God. Is uh, that when you trust in God, you are learning the habit of putting your life into someone else's hands. That's a vulnerable act of saying to God, I'm taking another person, I'm saying, I'm going to put my life into your hands. That's a habit of life that you're learning. If you say, I trust in myself, I'm believing in myself, I believe positive thoughts about myself, you are not trusting your life into someone else's hands. And let me tell you, that will impact your relationships with people also. That if you're in the habit of saying, I need to trust my life to God, then you're going to do that with people also. You know, I'll tell you, there's kind of a, a, a false kind of humility that, uh, you know, the kind of modesty when someone comes up to you and they say, wow, you're, you know, you're just a great listener. You're really, you're really wise with the Bible. And you say, oh, no, 
no, no, no, I'm stupid. Uh, you know, that, uh, it, that, you know, trying to deflect uh, compliments or deflect encouragement. No, don't tell me that. I'm, I'm really a bad person. Or, um, you know what you're doing? And many of you know that that's actually far more prideful than humble. Because what you're saying is, is when someone gives us a compliment and they say, you know, you did something well, there's this feeling, it comes up in your cheeks, that pleasure that you feel, and your cheeks get a little red and it comes up. And for some of us, we've had that pleasure where someone has delighted in us, and then they've betrayed us. And so we say, you know what, I'm not going to trust the feeling coming up in my cheeks. I'm not going to let someone give me that kind of pleasure. I'm not going to trust my life into their hands. So when someone begins to say, you know, you're a great person, I like being with you, or I like, you know, you're really good at this, you're a good cook, or you're very artistic, whatever it is, I, I, I want to deflect it. I'm an independent person. I don't need your compliments. I don't need your encouragements, right? What you're doing is you're becoming independent. And the fact is, you know, some of you have made a point to come up to me and say, hey, you know, that sermon you said, it was really helpful to me. And you're encouraging me. You're, I need that. I mean, yeah, if I live my life kind of hoping everyone's going to tell me how good I am, that's, that's idolatry and that's unhealthy. But on the other hand, I'm, just, I'm a, just a sinner. I need your encouragement. I need God's encouragement. You need encouragement. You need people to come and say, tell you what they appreciate, appreciate about you. And if you say, oh, no, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad person. I'm stupid or something. You're saying, I want to be independent. I don't want to be dependent on your encouragement. Do you see what I'm saying? So humility draws us near to people. Humility says, I'm willing to put my life into your hands and have that vulnerability because that's what we do with God. And, um, and so humility is the key to relationships. And you see that Peter says that here uh, in verse 5 where he says, close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For Peter, humility is the defining quality that draws a church together, that binds relationships together, is a spirit of humility. Now, uh, let me um, make a few points about how uh, humility creates relationships. The first thing is that humility makes us approachable. If you're humble, uh, people want to come and they want to talk to you, they want to open up to you. That's what uh, uh, humility makes you approachable. And, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, that that phrase, clothe yourselves with humility, it, it seems kind of superficial. Um, but uh, even though I think that humility is something that needs to start deep down in us, we need to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Humility is also something you wear. It is a demeanor that you have towards people. It's a, way, it's, it's a very subtle thing of how you listen to people, how you talk to them, the tone of your voice. You know, my dad always told me, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it, uh, is everything. That's, that's clothing yourselves with humility. Actually, we were just this week, uh, we had Andrew and Amy over for a last dinner. They've been interning with us for the last uh, two months, and we're having a final dinner, and, we, and we, d- we brought out the ping pong table onto our lawn, and we were playing ping pong. And uh, I don't know how this, maybe after playing ping pong, the discussion led to how much smack Nate talks when I'm playing ping pong. And, you know, honestly, I, I, if you've played a sport with me, you've probably noticed I talk a lot. And it just goes on and on and on. And, um, and honestly, I think I'm being playful with people. I think I'm being playful and I'm, we're having fun. And it was one of those experiences where everyone at the table is like, not playful. <laughs> we don't think, we're not having fun. We're not playful. 
And, uh, and so, you know, humility is something that can't just live down in your heart where you can say, well, I'm humble on the inside. It has to spill out and show up on the outside in how you talk and little things, how you play ping pong. And, um, uh, you know, we're going to be playing volleyball at the barbecue tonight. You'll all be seeing how I'm doing in, uh, since that talk. Um, but if your demeanor, you know, if your demeanor is one that's arrogant or one that's cold or one that's uh, aggressive, you're not approachable. You're not inviting people to come towards you. So humility is something that we believe down at our core about ourselves, but it's also something that we wear like clothing and that people see on the outside that, that draws people to us, okay? So it, um, uh, clothe yourselves with humility, but also, humility also protects us. And it protects us as a community, specifically from the devil. Okay, you might have caught that little, uh, that line there in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So, you know, the Bible, the Bible is very clear that we have an adversary. And, uh, and I'll tell you, right, this little congregation right here, we are a prime target for the devil. You think the devil likes... A group of people coming together, studying the Bible together, serving one another, building new relationships, serving our community. Do you think he wants a new church showing up in Bellingham? Absolutely not. And the devil is going to try to find his way into our relationships and rip them apart. How do we protect against that? Humility is, is, is the thing that protects us uh, from the devil trying to rip us apart. And I'll tell you that um, the way the devil works, it's not a big show. He works very subtly. It's going to be you giving someone a cold shoulder or looking at someone wrong or just a little taste of gossip about someone that's overheard. And then, uh, and then you go gossip about it to someone else, and it grows. That's what he wants is little places where, um, where he's stirring up pride in us. That we need to defend ourselves and we need to um, justify ourselves to one another. That's how he's going to do it. He's going to do it very subtly to rip us apart. And the key, how do we defend ourselves against the adversary? It's humility. Okay? That, that's our protection. You know, the devil is not that big, scary. There's not much to it. Uh, he's not as powerful as many people make him out to be. But he is real. And so we defend, so, so what you see is that humility is both the thing that starts relationships because it makes you approachable and it invites people to you, but humility is also the thing that protects relationships. Um, you know, the Proverbs say, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Uh, that's a huge thing that, that gives that atmosphere in this church of approachability, of grace, is that it is our glory to overlook an offense. Okay, we're a place where we come uh, uh, that God does not deal with us according to our sin, but according to his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the defining quality of our church. So, humility is both dependence on God, and it's the key. Humility is the key. If you want to have relationships, if you want to have deep relationships, it begins with humility. I have a last point, um, and I'll try, to, uh, I'll try to cruise through it, but it's maybe the one that I, I, excites me the most is that humility is also a kind of shyness. Humility is a kind of shyness. And um, in verse 8, Peter tells these Christians to be sober-minded. Uh, uh, Napho, this, this word's shown up three times in First Peter. Actually, the first two times, I didn't even mention it. And now Peter's saying, don't skip over that word. 
third time, okay, it's the third time we're looking at that word. And whenever that word sober-minded shows up, Peter is always talking about the hope that we have as Christians, that one day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things right in the world, that we're going to live in the presence of God, that death will be ended, every tear will be wiped away, and uh, all, there will be peace and reconciliation, and the earth will be what God intended it to be, and we will live in the presence of God. He's always, whenever he talks about being sober-minded, he's talk, telling us to look towards that hope. Let me just give you an example. In, uh, in chapter 1, he says, being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that? Sober-minded, set your hope on the grace that's going to be revealed. And then in this passage, he says to be sober-minded. And in verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. Eternal glory is that hope, the promise, the restoration of all things that we'll share in. Uh, He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will make you whole. Uh, the time is coming. Your deepest hope is, has not arrived yet. And so being sober-minded means having the thing that gives you the greatest joy, that makes you the most giddy, something that's hidden, something that no one can see right now. It's a hidden joy. And you know, I'll tell you, the opposite of being sober-minded is, is being intoxicated. And, you know, being intoxicated, there's no sense of shyness, right? There's no hiddenness about you. Uh, you're just, you're pouring it all out. You know, a lot of people who are kind of introverted. They like to uh, uh, get intoxicated because they feel more, I can, I'm witty and I'm, I'm just, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. They just come out. I, I don't have any inhibition, social inhibitions. I'm just being myself. I'm just pouring it all out. It's a total social open life. There's nothing hidden, and yet it's very shallow, it's an open but shallow life. And um, the hope that we have is different. The only thing that makes, the thing that makes us the most giddy, that, that makes us the most joyful, the most happy, is something that hasn't been revealed yet. It's coming. It's hidden. And there's a great paragraph in uh, G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. He has this great paragraph that he ends the book with where he says that uh, this was a quality of Jesus. You know, if you, uh, if you read through the Gospels, you find that Jesus was a very open person. He wasn't stoic. You know, he cried in front of people. He didn't care. You know, when Lazarus died, he's crying. When he's looking at Jerusalem and they're being unfaithful, his tears are just open on his face. Or he didn't hold back his anger. You know, he had this righteous anger. He goes into the temple and the money changers, he's thrown over tables. And there's just this open anger. And, but Chesterton says that there was something hidden about Jesus. There was something hidden about him that he was hiding from us when he went up on the mountain to pray with his father. There was something he wasn't showing to us that Chesterton says, I can only describe it as a certain kind of shyness. There was a shyness about Jesus. And he says, I fancy, I sometimes fancy that it was his mirth. It was his laughter, his joy, his playfulness. You don't see that in the Gospels. It's a hidden part of who he is that hasn't been revealed yet. And I'll just tell you, uh, we have that as a Christian. The thing, the deepest hope, the joy that we have is kind of hidden us. I can't tell you about it. I can't even describe it. It's so huge. It's this gigantic hope, but but it's hidden deep down inside of me. And I'll tell you, when you have that kind of shyness, where the, the deepest part of who I am, it's kind of hidden, when someone's suffering, you... 
you understand that they're suffering, you say, we haven't come to the consummation where God makes everything right. And I know that's hard. You're not trite with them. You sit with them and you say, that's painful. I know that because it hasn't been revealed. I live in that tension too. And yet you're also not cynical. You don't say, oh, the world's just going to trash and uh, it's a miserable place. And uh, you're not cynical. You say, you know what? There is a hope coming. And so you're not trite and you're not cynical. That combination is a humble life with a, a shyness that's inside of us. I'll tell you, these three things, that we have a dependence on God, that the key to our relationships is a, humi- a humble demeanor towards one another, and that buried inside of us is a huge, gigantic hope. Intoxicated people, their joy is just all over the place. It's very shallow. Our hope, our joy is hidden, but it's gigantic. It's earth-shattering. And when we have those things together we become the whole aroma, something that you can't pinpoint, the whole mood of a church comes about as one of humility. And would God make us uh, that kind of church? So let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We do ask, uh, we, we love humble people. We want to be humble people. You know all of our pride. Would you reveal it more to us? Would you help us to clothe ourselves with humility? that you would be pleased with us as a church and look on us with joy. And uh, so we thank you for your word, and may your spirit uh, convict us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.